Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Grab your Bibles. We're in Matthew 10 this morning. As we continue our way through this book, you'll, you'll remember last time we were going through the end of chapter 9 and beginning of chapter 10, and, and Jesus is about halfway through his earthly ministry, his, his public ministry. And, uh, you know, it's about three, and a half, three to three and a half years from, from his baptism to his ascension into heaven. And Matthew says that uh, as Jesus saw the multitude of people coming at him, which was almost every day, he had compassion on them, like it was a herd of sheep without a shepherd. And his disciples, as we talked last week, were kind of like, you know, I could imagine them because they would have the same attitude as many of us. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, whatever. Okay, okay, they're like sheep. Okay, I get that. But some days you could imagine this being exciting, and other days they're like, man, I, I'm just tired of the crowds. I'm just, I'm just tired of the people. I can't wait to get into the, the boat. Wait, wait, no, no, I don't want to get in a boat because I know what happened last time we were in the boat. But Jesus, you know, he never said that. He never said, man, these crowds are, are getting to me. These crowds are driving me crazy. He had compassion on them. But he also said, look at them. Look at the size of that harvest. It's amazing. It's going to be a bumper crop, uh, crop this year. And, and you, know, uh, you know, what does a bumper crop mean? That means a lot of potential there. A lot of, you know, a lot of needs, but a lot of potential. And you see, this is, this, is, you know, this is how God sees us. When he sees us, he sees needy people, but he doesn't see the needs. He's there to help our needs, but he sees who we are. He sees who we're going to be once he pulls our life together. Sometimes our life has to be kind of knocked apart for God to, to mold it back together the way he wants it, Right? And those difficult times, we hate going through those times. We hate being, you know, in that sense of being torn down and torn apart. And, and you know, we, we're just like devastated. And God's like, that's okay, that's okay. I know this is a tough time, but I'm going to put you back together if you let me. And that's how he sees us. Now, when you hold a baby in your arms, I mean, Celicia, you know, the little one, she's, she just usually, the last few weeks that I've been around her, she just kind of stares at me like, who the heck are you? But then yesterday, she, something clicked, and she's like holding her arms up at me, and, I, you know, and she's letting me hold her and stuff. And little bitty, I mean, just beautiful little girl. But when I see that, when you pick up a little baby, you see a little kid, you, beautiful little kid. Well, when God picks us up, he sees our whole life. He doesn't just see that one moment in time. God sees us before we get in the crisis. He also knows how we got ourselves into that mess, 
but he also sees how we're going to get through it because he knows where we're headed. Jesus looked out at the multitude and said, you know what that is? That's the harvest, guys. Guys, you need to start praying with me. Pray that, the, that, there be, that God would provide more workers for this harvest. And that was chapter 9. And then in 10, he sends them into the harvest. And it's something we talked about last week. And I, but I, I really, you know, I, I was kind of stuck here this last week and, and really wanted to kind of cover, you know, spend a couple more minutes here. Because when God asks us to pray about something, he's put that burden on your heart, put that desire, put something on you, you're sitting there going, man, this really needs to happen. And I mean, it, it just won't go away. You keep thinking about it. You're thinking, man, yeah, I got an extra hour of sleep, but I didn't really sleep because God kept me up thinking about this. Then I believe that's you in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, and I promise you one thing, He's going to use you somehow to figure out that solution. If God lays a burden on your heart, if God puts something on you, he's going to, he's going to use you somehow in that situation to, to move it forward. And I come across this all the time. Pastor, I, I think we ought to be doing this. Or, you know, we really need this ministry. Or there's a tremendous need here. And I go, you know, I, I used to be like, okay, let's meet. Let's come up with a game plan. Okay, let's, let's get a few people together. Let's start praying about it. Let's start, you know. But the big question always arises. Pastor, what are you going to do about this? Well, now my answer is, well, let's pray about this. And then my, my next uh, statement is, well, how do you want to be involved? But, 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 Pastor, that, that's not my gifting. But, but, Pastor, I've never done that before. I don't want to do that. That's not my desire. Well, then what should you be doing if God has put it on your heart? See, really, if God has given you the burden, then it's not about me and what I'm going to do about it. It's going to be about you. And unfortunately, people leave churches over this type of stuff. And I'm talking about all churches, not, this, not necessarily this church. And I'm not thinking of a particular situation. I'm just saying in every ministry I've ever been involved with over the 20-some-odd years, you always get people come up and say, well, we need to do this. And then if you don't immediately hop on it and do it, they leave. Because they need to go find a church that has that ministry. Already hopping and going. And you're like, well, we could, we could do that if you would get involved, if you could do that. If God has laid a burden on you in chapter 9, then in chapter 10, he's going to help you with that. And he's going to call you to, to help out. Let's jump into the word. It says here in, in Matthew 10 that he called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These are the 12 men that he called to change the world with him. And we kind of went over a couple of these last week, and I want to go over more of them uh, today, just who they are. Because, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, as, as often as we get together, as often as we talk, we truly don't know somebody until you hang out with them. Uh, I had a person last week that we were talking, and they're like, uh, they've come over to our house a few times, and they said, well, I didn't know this about you. And, and it's true. Unless you see me in a different situation, you think, you know, or if I see you always in a certain situation, I think, well, they're, the, they're like this. 
But then if I see you somewhere else, if I see you out of that situation, you're completely different. Or not completely different. I don't mean fake. I don't mean that. But I'm just saying they see a different side of you. When I was in college, I mean, in, well, junior high and high school and college, I was an athletic trainer, sports medicine. Now, the guys that I hung out with, I knew them because I spent 70 hours a week in the training room with them and then went to take the same classes. Now, my wife, when we started dating, she knew the guys, but she didn't know them like I did because I hung out with them. And she slowly started to get to know them over time. It's the same thing with the disciples. These guys were called to be disciples and apostles. Now, we went over some of this last week, so the word disciple means what? Student. Learner, somebody who, who's going to learn. And it, you know, it doesn't mean from, from 8 in the morning or 8.30 in the morning, whatever time the kids go to school nowadays, till 3 or 3.30 or 6 p.m. or whatever time your sport is over with. Or, you know, around here they have practice like late at night. I don't get that. But this meant 24 hours a day. Back then, I mean, you would have your bar mitzvah, and if your family could afford it, they would send you to Jerusalem. They would send you to the big schools. I mean, they would send you, in a sense, going to the big Ivy League school back east. You know what I'm saying? You know, they wanted to become a disciple of so-and-so. You had Gamaliel there, there, he's a big, big, you know, Jewish scholar at that time. Nicodemus, as, as uh, you probably recognize that name, he was there. And, and the, the, all the, you know, the high priests and all the other guys, they would have their own schools. And if you could get in, wow, I mean, you had to pay good money to be sent there. What Jesus was doing up in Galilee, he was doing the same thing. He was starting, in a sense, his school, which was very rare. Because the best teachers were in Jerusalem until Jesus came along. This would be like taking one of those Ivy League schools and plopping it down in Tulare, California. Now, no offense to those that were, were born here and grew up here and love it here. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it's different, isn't it? I, okay, at least I got a few heads that go up and down, so I didn't offend you all. But Jesus, he takes his school and he begins it in Galilee. But he doesn't just call them disciples. He also calls them apostles, those who are sent, those who represent him, those that are sent out. Now, these are, these are Greek words, which most of the time Aramaic was used. In fact, he could have used, the, used an Aramaic word, shalia, and the word means representative of the Sanhedrin, because that's really what, what, kind of, what he was doing. And what was the Sanhedrin? We've talked about this before. The rulers, the, the 70 rulers of the Jewish people, they, you know, they made the judgments. They, they made the ultimate laws. They were the supreme court of the Jewish society, the Sanhedrin. And they would send out shalias. They would send out those. When they would make a ruling, they would send somebody out and say, hey, you, you go to this town. You tell them what our determination is in this situation. And they represented them. Well, these shalias were also the ones that were showing up and questioning Jesus and trying to trip up Jesus in the law and, and trying to trip him up in, in the scriptures and say, well, you said this, but the scriptures say that. And Jesus would patiently explain it to them, saying, you've taken that law and you've changed it into a human meaning. You've changed it completely. You've gone from, you know, uh, the Sabbath is supposed to be holy and, and, and you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath to mean that you can't walk more than 40 paces one direction. 
But, but you get around that law by putting one of your possessions down so you can walk further. You know, they had all these little ins and outs, all these different laws, and, and they still do it. We, I've talked about this. Uh, you know, you go to Israel today, and on the Sabbath from, from Friday at sundown till, till Saturday at sundown, you get into an elevator, and it stops at every other floor. And the, the other elevator goes to the opposite floors because you can't push the button because that's considered work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. We've taken man's ideas and, and ra- try, to, try to push God's law into man's ideas and wrap it all up and say, this is it. And Jesus had to come and say, no, what you're doing is wrong. They're coming to Jesus and saying, man, you're, you're working on the Sabbath. You're eating during the time of fasting. You're healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus, you're hanging out with prostitutes. You're hanging out with low life. You're, you're hanging out with all these, these well, certainly they're needy people, but, but you're, you're too, no, no, no. You're supposed to be the man of Scripture. You're supposed to be a rabbi. Rabbis don't hang out with these people. So Jesus says, well, I'm picking my own shaleas, and they will represent me. And Jesus chooses these 12 guys and he's doing something very familiar to the people back then. But it's not something a, a, an everyday rabbi would do. But Jesus is not an everyday rabbi. It was more of a Sanhedrin type of thing. And what Jesus was doing was establishing his kingdom. Because, you know, like Jerusalem was a kingdom. Rome was a kingdom. He is saying, these guys are my primary guys. These guys are the ones that I'm going to send out. If, you, if they show up, it's like I just walked into the room. And in order to prove that, I'm going to give them the power to cast out demons. I'm going to give them the power to heal people. I'm going to give them the same power that I have to raise the dead. And their teaching will be anointed. These uneducated Galileans, when they speak... They will make more sense than all the educated people in in Israel. Now, before they can represent Christ, before they can go out there, they have to hang out with Christ. They have to get to know who he is and what he he stands for. So for, for 18 months, this is what they did. So do the math on this. Because some people feel like this. Some people say, well, I've only you know, been following the Lord for a short time, and, you know, I can't lead that men's group, or, or I can't teach that Sunday school class, or, you know, I've only served the Lord for 10 to 15 years. I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do certain things. Well, the disciples, they had how long? 18 months before Christ said, there you go. You're up. Get out there on the field. He selected these 12 guys. And then they spent another two years with him. Then his trial and crucifixion over a weekend. And after he, ra- after he you know, raised from the dead, he spent about another month with him. And then he ascended into heaven, and that was it. Now, he left the Holy Spirit with him, but I'm talking about his physical presence with him was not there anymore. His earthly flesh was not there. Then a few weeks later, Pentecost happens, and the power of the Holy Spirit just comes on them, and then bam, they are the church. It's them. And these guys are busy. Within weeks and months, over 5,000 people were following Christ. I'd say they were a little busy, wouldn't you? So don't think, you, you, you know, don't think that, uh, that you're not qualified, and don't feel like you're not qualified. Don't feel like you're, you, you know, it takes special training 
oh, well, I didn't go do this. I didn't have this training, so therefore I can't do this. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes you do need to go and, and, and be educated. But sometimes the Lord just anoints you with the knowledge of, of his knowledge for you to be able to teach the word of God also. It goes both ways. These guys were country bumpkins until Christ got a hold of them. These guys were nobodies. These guys were, were just kind of the, the looked down upon people. And now they're leading the church. In chapter 9 of their lives, they were praying about something. And then chapter 10, the Lord chose them to do it. Chapter 9 of your life, you may be praying about something. In chapter 10, the Lord, Lord may choose you to do it. Now that may lead some people to say, well, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to communicate to the Lord because I don't want to be, you know, who knows? I mean, the Lord's going to send me to India. He may very well do that, but most of the time, I'm going to say he doesn't do that. Most of the time, he wants you, you know, people say, well, well, what is my calling? Well, there's lots of different, you know, definitions of that word. But I'm going to say a lot of times, the Lord wants you to be a, uh, be a righteous person wherever you are at. Whether you're a teacher in school, whether you're a student in school, whether you have some, you know, an accountant, whether you're, whatever you do. God wants you to be righteous and truthful and be, be you know, a representative of him wherever you are. He wants you to raise your family well. He wants you to make good decisions for your family. He wants you to teach your kids about him and about his ways. That's what God's calling is. And then sometimes he has a special job on top of that for some of us. But we need to live a righteous life. You know, sometimes people are shocked by us. In my first ministry, I uh, ran a junior high ministry that just went crazy. Uh, started out with two kids, and before I left there, we had like 180 kids. We're taking 70, 80 kids to winter camp and doing all this. I mean, it was just nuts. It was a lot of fun, but it was just nuts. And you kind of got to be a little loopy to work with junior hires anyway. But there was this mom in the junior high group. And she lived vicariously through her child. I mean, to the point of, and, and not a good way either. I'm talking about almost in a negative way. Uh, you know, she, she got her daughter pushed into the pool one time, and the daughter was not wearing something appropriate to be swimming around in the pool. And her mom's like trying to pull her out. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're grabbing the towel first. You know, she's not, I'm just like, oh, come on. And they kind of just got lost in the big church that I was at. Well, a couple of years ago, I found out something. I found out that, the mom and dad are now in charge of the marriage counseling group at this church. And we're talking about a 4,000-member church. And I'm like, what? You, you've got to be joking. What, what, what are they doing that for? I mean, they, because I mean, their marriage was in a shambles at the time, and, and just the way they treated each other. I'm just sitting there going, I, I couldn't believe it. And the person I was talking to, they were like, yeah, it surprised me too. But you ought to see them now. God got a hold of them and changed them. God got a hold of them, and they're whole new people. God has rebuilt them, and they're great representatives for God. So don't ever feel like, I'm not righteous enough. I'm not holy enough. All you have to do is start following God in your daily life, and then God will start using you. You know, you want to be used by God. I mean, we always use the example of drugs and alcohol, but if you're a drunk and you sit there going, I want to be used by God, well, God's not going to use you when you're in the middle of you know, being drunk. You see my point? You have to start following him. 
You have to start acting like him. You have to start following his directives and his ways. He wants to mold us into what he wants. And when he does, we can accomplish great things. Now, up to this point, all that Jesus was doing... Well, I I misread that in my notes, sorry. What I was trying to say is that Jesus was doing it all up to this point. And doing it all, I mean, you can get it done the way you want it done, right? But there comes a point where you've got to have a little bit of help. You've got to rely on other people. And I don't think that, you know, they ever thought, man, Jesus, Jesus would have me doing this stuff. We always look at other people in charge and go, well, I would never do that. There's no way God would use me to do that. They were just getting used to, to what Jesus was doing. And, and Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath, and that was even different for them. They were just getting used to this kind of stuff. And here he's sitting there going, now you're going to do the same. You know, this same uh, uh, shock would have, would have been, you know, been there when, when Peter would look at James and say, well, don't look now. I think John just raised somebody from the dead. I mean, I mean John. John just raised that guy from the dead. I mean, Andrew, Peter, I mean, uh, the other guy. Come on, look at this. But don't look, don't look now because little quiet, little quiet Andrew, he just preached an awesome sermon. Now, before Jesus selected these guys, Luke tells us that Jesus went out and prayed all night. Then when the sun came up, came up, he, he went and he selected the guys. He said, you, you, and you follow me. You know, we've already gone over where he, he went to Matthew and said, follow me. And Matthew dropped everything, went to Peter and, and the guys in the boat and, and said, follow me after their boat was sinking because of all the fish. And, and they just left and followed him. But the point is that Jesus went out and prayed. If you have a big decision to make in your life, then you need to act like Jesus and stay up and pray all night, right? That's how it's preached. Now, no, I was going to ask how many people can stay up all night and pray, but I'm not going to do that to you. You know, we're just supposed to go out and do like the Lord does. But you know what? I say yes. That's exactly what we're supposed to do, and this is how it works. If you fall asleep during this time, no big deal. The Lord's okay with that. It's about the process. It's about trying. But when you wake up and you start fretting over whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're worrying about, start praying again. Or better yet, pray one hour each night for eight nights. And then you've covered an overnight. Some might say, well, I've never prayed for an hour. Okay, well, well, about a half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night. Well, I've never done a half an hour. Okay, well, then four 15-minute times during the day. When you eat and when you take your snack break. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wait, am I the only one that takes it? Okay, never mind. Well, Alan, I, I don't even know God's voice. Well, my answer used to be a little gentle on this. But I've kind of gotten a little more harsh over the years. I've gotten a little more kind of just pointed and in your face about this one. The reason why you don't know God's voice is that you don't listen. You don't listen. What? I don't need that guilt trip. No, no, you're supposed to be a loving pastor. You're not supposed to say that kind of stuff. No, I'm not saying that you're not trying to listen. It's just that you haven't done enough listening. 
I mean, when my three-year-old, sometimes he listens to me and sometimes he doesn't, I can tell the difference. Well, guess what? When God's talking to us, he can tell the difference when we're listening and not really listening, just like we can with the three-year-old. My wife can tell when I'm not listening. Ouch. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh. What was that you said? Listening to God, you know, sometimes you feel clumsy and awkward. Have you ever felt that? Like, I don't really, okay, God, I think. Do I have something in my teeth? Who am I, you know? We just, we get crazy when it comes to God. Because we, we don't understand. And if you never get past the stage of, of a longer prayer, if you never get past the, I'm sorry, Lord, or, or I've done this, please forgive me, if we never get past that stage, imagine a marriage that way. You know, the 10-minute stage or the five-minute stage or the three-minute stage, always apologizing. What would a marriage be like if it was, I'm sorry, Lisa, I'm sorry, Lisa. Oh, I'm so sorry, Lisa, I'm so sorry, Lisa, I'm so sorry. I did that again, Lisa. I'm so sorry. That, that, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, that's our same relationship with our Lord if we never get past that. Ten years from now, we'll still be the same. And it will still feel awkward praying to God if we never get past that. You have to spend time with the Lord to be comfortable with Him. So what do you do? Well, you grab your Bible, you open it up, and you start reading a little bit. And then you think through that passage. You don't have to read everything. Just a little bit, and then you think it through. What did the Lord just say? Who is he saying it to? Why was he saying it? And start thanking him for his word that it's there to guide you. God, thank you for loving this world. God so loved the world. God, thank you for loving this world. That he gave his only son. God, I don't think I could have given my son. I don't think I could do that. And God's like, I I know, but I was able to. That's okay. And then you start just having a conversation with him. Lord, I, I'm kind of hard to, to get along with. I'm kind of hard to love sometimes. Don't tell anybody, but I can be. And all of a sudden, 10 or 15 minutes will pass by in that conversation with God. And when you don't know what else to say, then get up and go. That's okay. You don't have to sit there and beat yourself over the head. You're just learning. It's like dating. Just go out for a light lunch, not a whole evening. But later on, you want to spend more time with Jesus. When I was dating Lisa, she'd moved to Nebraska, and this was before cell phones. This was before calling plans of unlimited uh, minutes and all this kind of stuff. And we bought these things, youngins don't even know, calling cards. And they had little numbers on the back. You punched it in. It was so many, you know, so much time for so many minutes. And man, I can't tell you, you go to Sam's or Costco. Well, we didn't have Costco back then. But, but Sam's, we get the calling cards. And man, we'd just go through those things like you wouldn't believe when she was up in Nebraska. We talked all the time. Why? We wanted to hear each other's voice. I don't know if we really said much. We just wanted to hear each other. Now that we're married, I can't wait to get off the phone. Now, we see each other every day. Don't, don't get me wrong. We talk. But I just, I'm not like the, the, the 23-year-old again. I'm 43 almost. 43-year-old Alan doesn't like the phone. 
23-year-old and loved the phone when he was dating Lisa. Do we get the same way with the Lord? You know, our conversations are different. Now we text, not in a bad way. But, you know, we're coming up on our 20th anniversary this year. Things are different, especially with a three-year-old, but we won't go there. But I wonder if our relationship with the Lord is like this. We should still be having conversations with Him. Sometimes they may be a little longer, sometimes they may be a little shorter. But as we progress in our relationship, we should be spending more time together. But it shouldn't be the couple, you know, like the couple who, who doesn't want to be around each other, doesn't want to, to talk at all. You don't want a bad relationship. You look at those marriages, and I mean, our earthly mind goes, why did they get married in the first place? Look at their relationships. No, I'm not saying they should get divorced. I'm just saying they should work on the marriage. If your relationship or if our relationship with the Lord is like that, then we have to ask the question, who moved? You know, when I was growing up, we had bench seats in the front of the car. And, and you know, the, Dayton Lisa, she would sit right next to me, put my arm around her, drive the car. I, hey, I was in heaven. This is great. Well, now, you know, if we still had bench seats, would Lisa sit still right there? Probably not. So my question is, Who moved? Okay, not really, but, but in our relationship with God, we have to ask that question, who moved? If we had a wonderful relationship with him, and then we don't anymore, then who moved? Who's not doing the conversating? Who's not communicating with our Lord? We have to talk with him. We have to start out small, and then one day you'll find yourself staying up all night, praying with him. Okay, let's look down the list again. We, we have Simon, we talked about last week, who's Peter. And he's always, he's always listed first in all the lists of the disciples. And, you know, this, is, this shows us that he is the leader of the disciples. Later on, he wrote first and second Peter. And then his brother Andrew. And his brother Andrew is the opposite of Simon. Uh, everything that we've read about Andrew, he's, he's quiet. He, he's kind of a deep individual. He's very still. He's not rambunctious. He never does anything impulsively. He was a follower of John the Baptist, and he actually brought Simon to God, to the Lord. And then you have James and John, the, uh, uh, the sons of thunder, and we've talked about the sons of thunder before. And, you know, John, later on, he writes the five gospel. He writes five uh, different books. You know, we have the gospel of John, and then first, second, and third John, and then Revelations. Later on, he's called the disciple of love. So he goes from the, the loudmouth, you know, for lack of a better term, the loudmouth idiot that, that's always causing issues to being the disciple of love. He's the only disciple who died a natural death. It's not that they didn't try to kill him by dumping him in a pot of boiling oil. He just survived. He's the only one who, who, uh, who you know, didn't, uh, wasn't martyred for the faith other than Judas who committed suicide. All the others were martyred for the faith. John's brother, James, was the first disciple martyred for his faith. Uh, you know, so it's kind of interesting. You have the first in the family that was martyred for the faith, and you have the one who lives the last of the disciples uh, within the same family. And John almost lives to the second century. Now, Philip was a guy who's always asking questions. 
You read that in the scriptures, and you'll see Bar- Bartholomew, also named Nathaniel. Those two names go together. And you might remember Nathaniel or Bartholomew when he came and said, We found Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And, 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 uh, and uh, Nathaniel Bar- Bartholomew said, Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. You've got to be joking. And then you have Thomas, who is famous for what? Doubting Thomas. We all know that, right? But it was probably, probably the most intelligent of the disciples because he wanted proof. He wanted to know if it was true or not. He's the first disciple who figured out that Jesus was going to die for his faith. Jesus was going to die because he was the son of God. Thomas said, let's go die with him. So don't stick just with the doubting Thomas idea of who he was. He was much more than that. He was a very smart person. And then Matthew, the writer of this book, he was a very wealthy guy, and we, we talked about that the last couple of weeks. And then you have James, son of Alphaeus. And then you have Thaddeus. He's also known as Judas, the son of James. And then Simon, uh, Simon, I can't even say, Simon the Zealot, also known as Simon the Canaanite. You might read that in the scriptures. He was a, a radical type of guy. He was a guy, the, the zealots were, were the ones that literally had knives with them all the time so they could slit the throats of, of any Roman official they could get close enough to. I mean, that's how out there they were. I mean, this guy was, tell me somebody on fire for something. This guy was a zealot. And then Judas Iscariot, the treasurer who betrayed Christ. Now these men are fascinating to us. And we, and we thank God that he put these men into scriptures, that he used these, these guys. And we also thank God for the frank truth of the Gospels, that we can see how ordinary they were. They had good days and they had bad days. And I like to see that in the Gospels. Because later on we see them in Acts. We see them doing amazing things. We see them doing a phenomenal things that are just unbelievable. I mean, they were fearless. So it's nice to see them before they became so fearless, before the book of Acts. So we don't just go to the book of Acts and go, wow, I could never do that. Wow, I could never be used by God in that situation or say those things to those people that, that, that they were able to do that. In fact, we're going to go to Acts 4 this morning to see what I'm talking about. And this is after the, the death of Christ and, and after the ascension up into heaven. And, and you know, this is when they're, they're being amazing. This is when they're being unbelievable. They're in Jerusalem and, and they heal a man. And they start to preach about Jesus and Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And they start doing that around the, the temple area. And that Jesus was raised from the dead and he was our salvation through, uh, or for eternal life through God. And the religious leaders, they didn't like this at all. The religious leaders hated this. They thought it was against the Old Testament scripture. They, they, you know, they didn't realize that it was a continuation of Judaism. That, that these are the guys who had, uh, that ultimately ki- you know, killed Jesus. And they didn't believe in the resurrection, many of them. And in verse 3, they arrested these disciples, and, and, you know, but they had to be careful. In fact, it says in Acts 4 here, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the messages believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. And again, you've got to go back to, and think about the scriptures. 5,000, they just counted the, the men. 
So their families, their, many of these families went around. So, I mean, the church grew rapidly. So 5,000 men, if they were married, they had multiple kids. They didn't have the 2.4 kids that we have in America. They had multiple kids, big families. So many followers. In other words, a bunch of people. This was amazing. No wonder why, you know, the, the controlling people were, were, you know, those that were in charge were filling out of control because they weren't in control anymore. Yet officially they were. So what they did is they put them in jail. And this, you know, this is how the Sadducees always behaved. The 20th century Sadducees, uh, you know, always try to regain control. Their life is hopeless, yet they want to be the same again. So they throw them in jail. And we don't know this for certain, but this is where my mind went this week. The, you know, the high priest is the, is the captain of the temple. And they had this jail where they incarcerated uh, the Jews uh, there. And they always took them to one place. It was a downstairs area, the high priest's house. And this is where the Jews would stay in jail. And this would have been the same place, I believe, that they took Jesus before he was crucified. Therefore, we have the potential here that Peter and John were in the same cell that Jesus was in not two months earlier, and they crucified Christ, so they're probably wondering, what are they going to do to us? Peter could have looked out and possibly seen the part of the courtyard where he denied Christ. And John had been inside the high priest's house many times because he was related to the high priest. So, you know, part of me wonders if if he was down there going, come on, John, what are you thinking? Get get out of this group. I mean, these guys are crazy. They're nuts. And John is like, well, I'll never stop. Now, again, that's all my conjecture. That's all my thinking. That's not Scripture, so let's not confuse the two. But in verse 5, it says, The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law... Uh, met in Jerusalem. Uh, Annas, uh, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas and John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. So you have all the heavy hitters. You have all the, the leaders there, the 72 of them versus two country boys. So think of this as Congress. They're all seated in a, in a semicircle, and, and John and Peter are brought in, and, and they're put right in the middle. And, and you know, uh, later, one of the guys sitting there uh, would have been Saul, and later he became, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul. But he, right now, is one of the seats of the Sanhedrin. Now, just so you know, this is hard for the Sanhedrin. There are those who genuinely want to figure out this guy, Jesus. They wanted to know about him. In fact, history tells us that Sanhedrin shortly, you know, very soon starts to fall apart very soon after this because many decide to serve Jesus. Not all these guys were bad. So it's hard for them to find a way out of this for these guys. But it was also very hard for them to put Jesus in a position of being a savior. So Peter and John enlightened them. In verse 7 it says, They had Peter and John brought before them, began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Well, what did they do? They healed this man. This is a very direct and very legal question for their system. And like good lawyers, they know the answer before they ask it. A lawyer never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer or he's going to get in trouble. That's just how it is. 
They're trying to trap them. They're referring to, to Deuteronomy 13 and some of the laws there. And according to law, if anyone came and did a miracle in any other name other than Yahweh, other than God, then they were to be executed. They don't want to bring a false god into the faith. So here's the deal. Are these guys doing the miracles in the name of, of Yahweh? Well, yes. They're doing the miracle in the name of Yeshua. And Yeshua's uh, salvation which happens to be the name of Jesus. So they're not just Jews. They're completed Jews. They understand the faith. They understand the Lord and His intentions. And this was not the answer that the Sanhedrin was, was, you know, this is a trial. They were starting to get nervous. And they go on and says, it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, now, and you've got to remember, this is a trial. Yet these guys are not nervous at all. Peter goes on and says, rulers and elders of the people. In other words, he's giving them respect. If we're being called to account today for an act of, of kindness shown uh, to a cripple and are asked uh, ask how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, Yeshua, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this a man stands before you healed. In verse 11 it says, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found nowhere else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter is so clear here. And it didn't go over well with the Sanhedrin. <coughs> but they couldn't do anything about it. Peter's quoting Psalms 118. It's a beautiful psalm. I mean, it's just a wonderful one. And there's a story attached to the, to the rabbis uh, that have been passed down to the, to, through the Talmud about how the, the stone, <coughs> excuse me, how the cornerstone of the temple, literally somebody looked at it and said, that's a weird-looking stone, and they just threw it over the side of the mountain. And they got ready to place the cornerstone, and, and, and they couldn't find it, and they sent some guides down the side of the mountain, and it was de- there amongst the weeds. And, and that's the, 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 the background of that, that he's talking about the cornerstone. And it says in verse 13, it says, When they saw, uh, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note of these men had been with Jesus. Man, I would love this compliment. Man, that, that, that guy over there, it looks like he's been around Jesus. That's a compliment. They didn't, they didn't mean it that way, but that's a compliment. Verse 14 says, But since they, uh, since they could see the men who had been healed standing there with them, or see the man, there was nothing they could say. In verse 16, What are we going to do with these men, they ask. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle. So even they recognize it's a miracle, and we cannot deny it. So basically they said, hey guys, you need to be quiet about this. Stop talking about this stuff. That's what they said to him. But Peter and John replied to him, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. You see, in Acts 5, it goes on and, and it says their numbers increased every day. 
These people would bring the sick out and lay them down just so Peter could walk by and his shadow would fall on them and they would get up and be healed. Now that's amazing. I mean, that's, it's not anything, any more amazing than what Christ did, but I mean, that, for, for, for us earthlings, in a sense, through the Holy Spirit, that's just phenomenal. But we never see Peter taking the credit. They're arrested and thrown in the prison. An angel lets them out, and they go back into the temple teaching the very next day, and they arrest them again and try them again. And Peter says to them, you murdered Jesus. Don't think that you can control this. So they finally just beat them up and sent them on. And every day they kept preaching Jesus. They were amazing. Go from, you know, misspeaking, acting up, misbehaving, to incredible, incredible witnesses for Christ. That was their journey. Country bumpkins. Those Galileans. Our journey starts as normal people. That's what our journey starts as. And then the the Lord gets a hold of us and starts changing us, starts changing our our relationship with our children, starts changing our relationship with our parents, starts changing our relationships with our spouse, with our boss, with our coworkers. And he gets a hold of us and changes us and molds us into who he wants. Take Thomas, for example. Do you know what Thomas did? After Christ was crucified and after the Holy Spirit was given to them, he stayed around Jerusalem for a while. Then he went through Jordan and through Iran, through Iraq. He started a church in Baghdad, in that area, and that church is still alive today that, reached, uh, the, that traces its lineage as a church back to him, back to that time. That's so cool. He goes through there and he settles in India and spent the rest of his life starting churches all over the area. You can actually go to, to what they believe is, is his grave in India today. Within one generation, these 12 guys went from 12 to over 1 million Christians. That's amazing, isn't it? Now there's over 1 billion Christians in this world from 12 people that Jesus picked to represent him. That is amazing. When our heart is in the right place, he can do amazing things through, the, uh, through us, right? Amen? When our heart's in the right place. So stop sweating the small stuff. We're so worried about the little things, and we forget the big picture, that God wants to use us. And it starts by us going to him and saying, praise you, Lord. You're amazing. You're the Almighty. And start praising him instead of the first thing out of our mouth says, I'm sorry. God knows that you're going to him. And now you'll get to the sorry part later because he asks us to, to ask for forgiveness of our sins. But God will know your true heart when you come to him and you start worshiping him through the scriptures. You start worshiping him through prayer to begin with. So stop sweating the small stuff because if God has called you to follow him, then follow and watch what he will do. Well, let's stand as we pray and the worship band comes back up here. Lord, we just, we just come to you and we, we just praise you. We come before you knowing that we're uh, unclean, knowing that, uh, uh, that we have sin in our life. But we also know that you said that you would cleanse us, that we stand in front of the Lord as white as snow.
We stand in front of you without a blemish. That's how you see us. And I pray that you help us start seeing ourselves that way. That we are sinners that can be used for your kingdom, just like these 12 men were. That you can help us change those around us here in Tulare, California in 2013. That that's what you're concerned about, Lord. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he never turn his face from you. May you always feel his love. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.